Send some of your vibes to Chuck because we hope that he can return next week for a full week of new live shows. I certainly am. This is a lot of work, you know, doing this every week. There's so many interviews to play back. And let's see, is there any other uh, Chuck news? Um, I think that's it. I Hopefully we'll be back with new live shows uh, next week and the week after. But apparently Chuck did gain a lot of weight back um, overnight. I was listening to his episode on Monday. He did return for a live show on Monday, uh, which was awesome to hear his voice and ask people questions again. And uh, so hopefully that weight gain is under control. I was thinking earlier about playing an interview from 2020 with Ann Newman on the global drug supply chain, and that interview is about hydroxychloroquine and the pandemic, and then uh, Chuck also was interviewing somebody about uh, the pharmaceutical industry. So I figure that's covered, and I, I went through some more of the archives, and I found these these interviews with Sharon Lerner. And I have to say, I'm quite passionate about the issue of environmental contamination. And that's what she writes about and the you know social injustices that it's related to, that it's connected to, that it is. Um, so I totally recommend checking out more of Sharon's interviews on here. This one that I'm going to play today is from 2017 and it is titled Environmental Racism and the Government's Toxic Negligence. Sharon also has a more recent interview from 2020 about um, chem cancer causing chemicals and industry regulation. That is a good update to this episode. There's also one on plastic. We can't recycle our way out of the global plastic waste disaster. I just can't. I just don't want to talk about plastic. It's so depressing. And so, I don't know. Could plastic possibly have a place in our universe? Like, why did human consciousness, like, 
produce this much plastic that we now, I don't know, it's in our bodies and stuff? It's a good question, but I don't have the answers, clearly. So besides listening back to that, we are also going to read this week's question from hell. And I'll read some of the responses on Facebook, which I still have to open. But I do believe this week's question from hell is, what are you replacing white people with? Indeed, a strange question from a show made by mostly white people, including me. But what are you replacing white people with? I'll read your response if you reply on Facebook in the next 40 minutes or so. All right. So the reason I was interested in uh, the global supply chain medicine episode that I mentioned earlier is I'm confused why like we are people are more likely to support like local food you know it's like that's more normal like the local food movement but why not local medicine you know let's talk you know who even knows where the drugs that most people get are made I do not um so I kind of like the fact that I can go outside and find plants that are medicine, you know, that's, that's local. So I do that, but a big question people always ask me is like, how do you know that's safe? <laughs> because we all know that uh, there are pollutants in our environment. Um, people like to ask me like, what if a dog peed on that when I eat like a plant in front of them? I think that one's kind of funny question. Um, I just say maybe. <laughs> but anyways, the big concern is, you know, lead, heavy metals in the soil. Uh, the responses I usually give, especially to the dog peeing question, is how do you know that the exploited laborer who was picking your lettuce, like, had time for a bathroom break and didn't just, like, you know, pee right there? Like, I've heard stories of that. All this stuff in the store, it's grown with pesticides, you know? And so what's the difference if there's, you know, some contaminants in the stuff out street? Difference is you don't have to pay for it. But also what these interviews are about is air pollution. So whether or not you're eating these plants that might have gotten some pollutants on them you're breathing in the pollutants that the plant is also breathing in um and you're walking on the polluted soil too probably with shoes but still you kick up dust you kick up dust and you breathe that in too breathing in pollutants is very bad for you so uh i would say if you want to go local with your medicine you can go really local and the like dandelions just growing in the cracks outside your door. They're they're medicinal, medicinal, and not only medicinal, medicinal, but they are a detoxifying herb. So that could be helpful in today's day and age. So yeah, I think this is a very big issue, and I was I was just thinking about how 
perhaps globalization it's it's like we're trying to ex escape from our environment by i don't know getting things from around the world that we we don't know where it really came from like rather than what's growing right on the street in front of our apartment like you know we don't really want to think about what's directly in our environment because these articles or these interviews are about places where people are being poisoned like you know more than other more than most people more than average but you know these chemicals are everywhere then your laundry detergent you know and the yeah like the pesticides used to grow your, grow your food you know and so on and so on so we live in the city of chicago which yeah we definitely should be concerned about environmental contamination but it also feels fruitless sometimes because it's like it's everywhere <laughs> it's just i don't know take your detoxifying herbs that was all i gotta say i guess um so without further ado um i'm gonna play this episode on environmental racism and the government's toxic negligence. Uh, journalist Shan Sharon Lerner reports on the ExxonMobil refinery polluting the majority black Charlton Pollard neighborhood of Beaumont, Texas, and the poisonous 14-year silence of the EPA after the citizens' civil rights complaint, and connects the mechanisms of environmental racism to history and present of regulatory rollbacks and industry non-compliance in powerless communities across the country. All right. I'll let Sharon say all that for herself. Enjoy the interview. This is hell. Environmental racism is making the African-American community next to an ExxonMobil facility in Texas sick. Really sick. And nobody's doing anything about it. In fact, the neighbors of the sickening plant have pretty much given up on doing anything about it. Here to tell us about yet another incidence of environmental racism taking place in the States today, award-winning journalist Sharon Lerner posted The Intercept story, A Legacy of Environmental Racism. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Sharon. Thank you. you Glad might, to be here. You might remember Sharon being on our show in May to discuss her article, The Plant Next Door, a Louisiana town plagued by pollution, shows why cuts to the EPA will be measured in illnesses. You can follow Sharon on Twitter at FastLearner, that's L-E-R-N-E-R. -E so I guess the place to start is the last interview that we did. Is this yet another example of environmental racism? Is this like the situation that you saw in St. John the Baptist, Louisiana, where you see a community, an African-American community, predominantly African-American community, living next to a facility that is having a negative environmental impact, that being a neoprene plant in uh, St. John the Baptist. And here in Texas, we're seeing the exact same thing again. How similar are the two situations in Beaumont, Texas, next to the ExxonMobil facility, and in St. John the Baptist, Louisiana, next to the neoprene facility? You know, I'm really glad you brought up that parallel. Um, they're very similar, these situations. Um, so you have two communities, as you mentioned, uh, mostly African-American, not uh, pretty low income, a lot of people living in poverty, and and they're next to uh, these facilities that emit 
uh, all sorts of toxic chemicals, and they're also experiencing these high rates of um, various illnesses that we know to be in many cases related to the toxins that they're, that are emitted. So it's uh, so many parallels. Unfortunately, it's not like I've picked these two points. You know, these are the two points in the United States where this is happening. It's um, you, I hear about these situations again and again and again. And when I dig into them, there are often these elements, you know, and it's not a coincidence, which is what makes it more systemic, as you were saying about it, it's a racism. It's not a coincidence that these communities tend to be at low income uh, and often uh, African-American, non-white and other folks um, who aren't white. And what happens is, the as people as these facilities uh, emerge, and in many cases they've been there for in both of these cases they've been there for many many years, and people kind of uh, appreciate what's happening to their air. In both cases, we're talking about air pollution. You know, people who can afford to often move away. And gradually, as the pollution builds, these become less and less desirable places to live. So they kind of create these like traps where the uh, value of real estate and the property that people have been living on depreciates, which makes it uh, all the harder for people who own their homes and live there to get out. So... So you find these communities where, where, and again, these are two of them, where it's kind of, uh, especially in in Beaumont, where they've been aware of this pollution, which is the difference between the two. In St. John, there was kind of a, a recent happening that made people fully appreciate the risk that uh, the chemicals used to make chloroprene, or used to make neoprene, the chemical called chloroprene, it was recently assessed and people appreciate suddenly what the, you know, exactly the risk they're facing, though they knew that they were sick for many years. In Beaumont, they've been aware of this for so long and they've been trying to do something about it for so long. And that's the real difference. So, you know, so in St. John, there is this sort of wave of, I don't know, I don't know if I'd call it optimism, but anger is certainly in this sense of get this out of here. And in Beaumont, I mean, especially now, of course, Beaumont was hit by uh, the recent storms pretty hard and is underwater. I don't even know if they have water running uh, yet again. So anyway, those are, there are a lot of parallels and differences too, but a lot of parallels, unfortunately. So it's, these are not anomalies. This is more systemic. What do we miss in understanding racism today in the United States when we don't consider environmental racism? Because these two stories that you wrote for The Intercept, I'm not seeing any reports about these situations anywhere else. You're the person who introduced this to me. So what do we miss in understanding racism when we don't consider and environmental racism isn't reported upon? Right. I mean, it's it's really an important piece of the bigger picture, I think. You know, rightly, we've been focusing on police violence, for instance, and and, uh, and gun violence and how that disproportionately affects African-Americans and and takes real tolls. And when we look at, like, health statistics and, and we look at life expectancy, 
you know, you can see that you factor these in and you think there's all this, you know, violence and, and, and that, that is part of, you know, it's stealing lives. It's stealing years from people's lives. Well, so is environmental racism. You can measure it, you know, you can measure it in terms of, you know, I referred to a couple of studies in this piece where, you know, they actually measure the, the amount of various toxic um, contaminants in, in people's blood throughout the United States. And it's, you know, for most of, I think it was like 13 to 14 in the chemicals in the study, they were lower for whites and higher for African-Americans because they disproportionately live in these communities that are near to these kinds of facilities. And, and also, as I said, it kind of affect, it affects real estate prices. So, if, you know, when you're paying to live in a good area, part of what you're paying for is the uh, distance from these sources facilities. I missed my button. Uh, you write the plant, uh, the one ExxonMobil plant in uh, Beaumont, uh, the plant releases at least 135 toxic chemicals, many of which include 1.3 butadine, whatever, butadine, uh, benzoprene, uh, styrene. Uh, they're all carcinogens. And the plant right. is regularly in noncompliance with the Clean Air Act. Yet, you add, many of the people that you had met on your recent visit to Charlton Pollard, that's the neighborhood in Beaumont where this uh facility is, said they felt there was no point in trying to reduce the emissions. If this facility is in noncompliance, then why are they still operating? How long have they been in noncompliance? And is the real mm. revelation here not that ExxonMobil is polluting and doing serious damage to their neighbors' health, but that the U.S. agency that is in charge of the environment and public health and the rules and enforcements that govern that agency allow this kind of sickening pollution to continue? Right. So enforcement is what you're talking about. And a big piece of that is states. So in um, in Beaumont, we're talking about the TCEQ, the Texas State Agency that's responsible for environmental enforcement. And they prosecute, they actually were penalized a very small minority of what these exceedances over what are sort of um, permitted emissions. So basically, the state agency will go ahead and consider the facility and what it emits and set these levels of, like, you can emit this much, but not more, right? And then they pay attention to, hopefully, well, there's another issue there that we can come back to because many people would say they don't pay enough attention. But when they what they do record uh, is often over the limit that was set. So what happens in, in those instances is the question. And there was a recent study that showed that fewer, less, less than 5% of these exceedances were penalized in any way. And the number has been going down in recent years by the state of Texas. And Texas, of course, is, you know, a huge um, hub for these kinds of uh, refineries and other chemical facilities. And I believe that the last year it was uh, quantified, 2016, it was 1%. So that's a big part of it. EPA does some enforcement too. Um, and of course, we need to talk about you know the changes at EPA, which are, are really important. But to the extent that there have been enforcements over the past 10, 15 years, the, the most important one did actually come from the U.S. EPA and actually did manage to 
reduce emissions somewhat. Um, but I think when we're talking about regulatory failure with this plant in particular and others in Texas, we have to talk about both state and the U.S. EPA. So um, this story just it's as depressing as the one that you wrote about uh, Louisiana. You described the Charlton. Uh, that's OK. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad that I'm being <laughs> I'm, informed I'm... at least, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you described the Charlton Pollard section of Beaumont, Texas, as a roughly square mile neighborhood just west of the Exxon Mobil plant. And you write how the residents had good reason to doubt their concerns about the plant's environmental impact on their health would be taken seriously. They already raised them, as, as you were saying earlier, in a formal complaint to the EPA 17 years ago. So what is the state of that complaint? Is it lost in a sea of red tape? Was the complaint not seen as valid? Or is the complaint uh, the basis of the noncompliance that the plant is uh, currently in? Is the plant simply ignoring the desire of the people and the will of the agency? Well, so so the complaint I'm talking about is the Title VI, VI complaint, which is based on the Civil Rights uh, Act. And basically the complaint said that um, the state of Texas, uh, which is the recipient of federal funds, violated the civil rights of the people in this Charlton Pollard uh, area by permitting, by allowing the Exxon uh, mobile plant to emit the um, level of toxins that it does. It's an overwhelmingly African-American neighborhood. You know, they're not emitting this kind of thing in, in other neighborhoods that have different racial makeup. So it's it, that's the essence of their argument. And they filed this in the year 2000. Um, it basically, th three years later, they got a response saying, we're investigating. Uh, that alone is a violation of EPA's policies. They're supposed to uh, respond in, I think, it's 200 days, certainly less than a year. And they're supposed to have investigated by then. Three years later, they get a, a letter saying, we're going to investigate. And then, you know, 14 more years later, basically in those 14 years, nothing happened. Nobody went to speak to them. Nobody um, investigated what was going on to their knowledge. Um, and so basically one of the important things to say about that situation is that it's not unusual. Um, many, many of the complaints to the U.S. EPA over civil rights in these Title VI complaints just went unanswered. They were in a minority uh, by just getting a response saying, we're going to investigate. So we talked a little bit before about how there's a kind of sense of uh, hopelessness there. And I think this is part of it. But, you know, here they reached out to this agency and they said, we need your help. We feel we're being discriminated against, you know, and in, in that initial complaint, they detailed the illnesses they had and and their sense that they were being unfairly contaminated, really. And and it just nothing happened. And the reason I wrote about this place in particular, given, you know, of the so many where similar things are going on is because while that complaint set unanswered for basically 17 years, 14 after that uh, initial letter. Very recently, their complaint was officially closed by the Trump administration EPA. And this was not because the issues were resolved. The issues at the heart of it, which is here they're getting way more pollution than they should compared to anybody else. Uh, 
No. In fact, what happened is they ended up, quote unquote, resolving this case by saying they promised them that they would hold two community meetings and install an air uh, monitor, air quality monitor, that was more than a mile away from the plant. Further, it's basically outside of the neighborhood I'm describing. And with that, they basically washed their hands of this complaint that had been sitting there for 17 years. So you can argue about which is worse, uh, doing nothing or you know, closing the door to the possibility that anything will be done. They're both bad, very clearly. Um, but it seemed important to bring this up now because here we've had this longstanding issue, really longstanding, of these communities getting disproportionate uh, shares of environmental contamination and inaction on the part of many, uh, the EPA under many different administrations, right? But then on top of it, now we have a new president who says, forget it, you're, issue, you're done, we close your case. And on top of it, Trump, of course, is, is rolling back a bunch of regulations that will affect uh, oil refining in general and their place in particular. So he's given the green light to uh, the Keystone Pipeline, which will flow down there, increase production. And the plant that they've been living next to for years now and suffering all the pollution from is going to expand its output, and that will affect them as well. Is there increasing apprehension to any degree about the Keystone Pipeline? Because the Keystone Pipeline will be going through the area that was just hit very hard by Harvey, and uh, I believe I no, just the area where Harvey went through. Uh, so is is there any increasing apprehension about building the uh, Keystone Pipeline? Because if Harvey had hit the Keystone Pipeline, the disaster down there would even be worse. Right. I mean, it's it's expected to deliver more than 800,000 barrels a day. Wow. Um, to basically, it ends in this place between um, Beaumont and a, a nearby town, Port Arthur, both of which got very hammered by uh, Harvey. And... Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know how to say how it would have been. A, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's clearly adding to the dangers in a place where there are already way too many. Do you think that this is going to the situation with Harvey? Do you think this is going to lead places like Texas and maybe places like Louisiana? Maybe we saw it. Uh, maybe there was some kind of evidence of this in the wake of uh, Katrina. Do you uh, have any hope that there is going to be a reconsideration of the very lax regulations, environmental regulations that these two states have in light of especially the poisoning that's taking place right now in Houston and Port Arthur because of the flooding? I, I would assume that, I mean, I I hate to assume, but I would assume that this ExxonMobil facility in Beaumont probably also leaked some contaminants into the water. So uh, is there any sense that you have that either in Louisiana or in Texas, there's going to be a reconsideration of having more tightened environmental regulations? Um, well, you asked if I have hope. You know, I wouldn't be writing about these things if I didn't have hope because, you know, as you said, it's very depressing, but I feel like the whole point of raising these issues is that we can, you know, convince people that it's, you know, it it, it absolutely needs to happen, that you, you, it, we absolutely need to improve both pollution controls and the safety uh, 
checks on these plants that are incredible dangers, not just because of the the pollutants they leak, but also because of the fires uh, and the explosions that happen there with regularity, which, of course, some of them, you know, just emit lots and lots of toxins and some of them kill people. Um, and I I am very hopeful. I haven't seen signs of it yet that Louisiana and, and, and Texas are, are, you know, are actually moving on, you know, tightening their uh, safety controls. But I absolutely think that there have been calls. There have been calls from from this among local environmental leaders and among, in the press. And I think obviously that's the direction we need to go. I mean, the the bitter awfulness of this is that you know, on top of of sort of rolling back all these protections that were hard fought and hard won. We, of course, have a president who's ignoring uh, climate change, which is exacerbating the danger. So it's it's um, a perfect storm of perfect storms, you know. So um, when it comes to environmental racism, isn't placement of any polluting facility anywhere a violation of the local resident's civil rights? Couldn't anyone who is living in an area near a proposed polluting facility or expansion of a polluting facility, no matter their race, claim the plant violates their civil rights. And if this is allowed, would that make it so polluting plants could not be built anywhere? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, so we have we have these legal limits. Um, and I mean, I guess there are two questions. One is to assume if they're within their legal limits, which sometimes they are, right? And yet there's still they still may pose a danger which just becomes understood by like smells and, and the ugliness of it and the noise of it and other hassles, then that ends up being decided not by, you know, lawsuits and, and uh addressing violations of the law, but really by the market, right? So you have people saying, I don't want to live by that plant the the value of the property, the desirability declines, and you have people moving there who, uh, you know, whatever their race or ethnicity are, have uh, less money probably, and also less sort of political uh, time and political power to kind of, uh, you know, vocally oppose these things. So there's that end of it. And then there's the Yes, anybody who is living near these things, regardless of their, you know, race, could address it as um, as a violation. But again, I think that it before you get to that point, uh, people who can move, you know. Do you think it makes Often. any difference when it comes to environmental regulations and ExxonMobil's impact on the people of Beaumont, Texas? that Rex Tillerson is the Secretary of State, do you think it makes any difference that we're in a Trump administration? In other words, is this lack of enforcing and regulating polluters and their impact on their neighboring communities an outlier for the Republican Party, or do you think the same kind of reaction to environmental regulations would be happening no matter who the Republican is in the White House? It's absolutely going to be worse. And I don't think it's so much about Rex Tillerson. I think it's more about Scott Pruitt. I mean, they have very clearly and very deliberately uh, attempted to, and in some cases successfully, 
rolled back regulations that have, that were designed to protect these communities and decide, designed to reduce air pollution and reduce emissions of other kinds. You know, and sometimes, you know, with the methane rule, with the ozone, they've been stopped a little by the courts so far. But in many cases, they haven't been. And again, with the pipelines opening and, and this emphasis on, you know, oil. And, and But the other, the other piece of it is this very deliberate attempt so far uh, to, so far it's just an attempt, but basically their budgets have been saying, we are going to reduce money for enforcement of within EPA and all these different departments. Well, enforcement is already obviously too lax, right? We obviously already have huge problems keeping these companies from uh, abiding by the, the law the way they're supposed to. So now what we're doing is talking about sometimes a 30% reduction, depending on the, the area, uh, you know, in the budget. But basically, if you reduce the people on the ground who are there to, you know, make site visits and, you know, measure the emissions from these plants, you're just, the companies will either be emboldened to, you know, to get away with things more. And I think that's absolutely about decisions that the Trump administration has already made um, with the installment in Pruitt and, and the budget that they've put out. We have been speaking with award-winning journalist Sharon Lerner, who posted the Intercept story, A Legacy of Environmental Racism, this week. You might remember Sharon being on our show in May to discuss her article, The Plant Next Door. Sharon covers health and the environment for The Intercept and has received awards from the Society for Environmental Journalists, the American uh, Public Health Association, the Women in Politics Institution, and the Newswoman's Club of New York. Her series, The Teflon Toxin, was a finalist for a National Magazine Award. You can follow Sharon on Twitter at FastLearner. That's L-E-R-N-E-R. As you may remember from our last uh, discussion, our final question is always the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, <laughs> or our audience is going to hate your response. To you, oh. What does it say about the state of whatever democracy we have here in the United States when people like the people in Beaumont feel like they have no power to stop the air they breathe from being poisoned, when they feel they can't do anything about the continuous exposure to toxins that may be killing them and are at least creating high costs to their financial and physical well-being. What does it say about our democracy when it seems like these people have given up? Oh, it's a terrible question. And I, you know, and I wish I could give you, you know, hope. I wish I wish I could say I walked away from Charlton Pollard with some hope. Um, and I guess I, I, as I said before, I have long term hope or I wouldn't be writing about and thinking about these issues. But I, but what's happening here is certainly fatigue on the part of the residents, you know, whose hopes uh, who, you know, Hundreds of them were showing up at community meetings in the early 2000s when they had just heard back from the EPA that they were going to be investigating. And there was a sense of, oh, gosh, they're listening and we can do something. As time went on and they never heard back and there was no attention paid to their problems, uh, those meetings became more sparsely attended. The most recent meeting uh, had three people there, and it was a meeting about uh, the new proposed uh, contracts and expansion of the plant. So they're about to be facing really important new problems, and nobody had the well, the time, the energy, or the heart to 
to go there. And so I, you know, I think what it says about our democracy is that there are some people who feel uh, that that nobody cares about them. And unfortunately, so far, uh, they've they've been right when it comes to, you know, the the powers that be both state and federal. Right. And there's this one guy I met there, uh, a man named Ivan Frederick, whose house was one house away from the fence line of the plant. And when I was there near the plant, there are times when I would feel like there was this smell would come and I would get lightheaded and get a headache. And it was like, so I didn't have to just rely on the stories from people, but like I felt it myself. And Ivan Frederick must be, his house is right there. And I can't imagine how many times a day in a week he has felt like this. Um, And in the beginning, he went to these meetings and he was, you know, he was there with everybody else saying, you know, they've got to reduce their emissions uh, or buy us out, which is another thing people there want. Um, And eventually he stopped going. And one of the things he told me uh, when I said, well, you know, why won't you go to this meeting? You know, I think they're talking about new things, the expansion. And he said, he said, there's no point. And the thing he said to me is no matter how much you protest, uh, you're spinning your wheels. They have the power, and it's called money. And, I mean, again, long-term, I have hope. Short-term, I think what we have to address is that on all levels of government, we're seeing that, like, money, the money he's talking about, can smooth the way for a company to do whatever the hell it wants. And the people who suffer and people who can't get away from it, who don't have the money to move, like Evan Frederick, for the short term anyway, are uh, fairly screwed. Well, apologies for that terrible question. And thank you for that terrible response, Sharon. I really (laughs) appreciate it. It's great hearing from you again. Award-winning journalist Sharon Lerner posted The Intercept story this week, A Legacy of Environmental Racism. You can follow Sharon on Twitter at FastLerner. That's L-E-R-N-E-R. Thanks so much for being back on This Is Hell. Thank you for having me on. All right. Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. That was Sharon Lerner, journalist Sharon Lerner, on environmental racism and the government's toxic negligence. I apologize if my sound earlier was not very straightforward. I was using the microphone wrong. We got some feedback to try and be louder. So that's also why I was listening to Edit James earlier, if you were with me. I was trying to get some confidence to project the vibrations coming out of my vocal cords. But you got to be careful because I don't want to breathe into the microphone. But I think we need to get a new microphone screen. I think we have the wrong kind of windscreen on this microphone. And that might help our problem. Anyways, back to that interview. Yeah, I think that... I think that climate change is the end of capitalism. And that's what rich people are trying to 
you know, they have more of an ability to escape from this environmental contamination than poor people. Um, and, you know, so they're, they're making the working class weaker, sicker. So it's harder to overthrow. I don't know. That's the theory of mine. So let's get on to the question from hell. I mean, I just, like, that environmental contamination is definitely proof that this is hell. Why would, God, why would you, why would you do this, you know, make these chemical producers so rich and these plastic producers so rich? I just don't get it. Anyways, question from hell. Let's, let's laugh it off, I guess. What are you replacing white people with? What are you replacing white people with? So, I don't like to be this close to the microphone because then my mouth noises are even louder. Dan's last response was self-checkout kiosks. Let me find that. What are you replacing white people with? Wajshik R says, that cigar box full of screw-in fuses that I can no longer use. Gotta use it for something. Jeff Caruss. More useful than white people, I guess. Jeff C says sauerkraut. Sauerkraut is like, that's, that's the one good thing that white people have. And we all need to eat more of it. Mike N says, my biology is slowly cell by cell replacing me with an older white person. I am terrified. What are you replacing white people with? That response kind of reminds me of the only thing that I thought it was. I'm replacing myself with a decomposed body in a number of years. I don't know how many, but currently all of us are decomposing a lot of food and stuff into something else. I don't know. You know, poo is a taboo. I don't want to go there. Neil C says, what are you replacing white people with, Neil C? Neil C. is replacing white people with virtue signaling lawn signs. That's a good one. Jamie K. is replacing white people with Soylent Green. And our very own Jeffrey Josephus Dorshan is replacing white people with hot sluts. Alright, I guess that's good for all of us. <laughs> More hot sluts in the world. Okay. I think... I can go ahead and leave the remaining responses for Sebastian tomorrow. In case there aren't any on Twitter. And I think my duties are done. So have a nice rest of your day, night, wherever you are. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>